You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open them to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. Probably not the, the passage that you are used to going to on a day-to-day basis, but uh, 1 Samuel has some incredible uh, things in it that are important for the formation of Israel and the kingdom, the united kingdom of Israel under David, and, and just a, a remarkable amount of historical events, none of which we are going to talk about this morning. Because we're going to begin in chapter 1 and talk about something totally different. I want to say before we continue, I, I love that video. I love the video because it expresses so much in, in, in such a short amount of time. Uh, Mother's Day is a complicated day. It's a complicated day for pastors and for church leaders. You know, we we ask ourselves this question every time we roll around at this time of the year, you know, how do we address Mother's Day? Do we address Mother's Day? Many of you may be surprised to hear us say that, you know, why wouldn't we address Mother's Day? What's, What's wrong with Mother's Day? And it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. Mother's Day usually is a celebration. Uh, We certainly do want to celebrate the moms and rejoice in uh, what they are doing, how they're pursuing Jesus, how Jesus is shaping them more into His image. Uh, There are so many ideas out in the world about what motherhood is in television shows and movies and pop culture, all of which fall short of God's Word and what God's Word tells us a godly woman should look like. And so when moms follow Jesus, we want to celebrate that. We believe that families are better, churches are better, communities are better when moms love Jesus and follow Him. But Mother's Day, on the other hand, is not always celebratory for everybody, is it? It's not always something to be happy about. It's not something that always elicits joy for someone in the church. Some of you have lost your moms recently. And so you've had to mourn the loss of your mama. And, and so Mother, Mother's Day arrives, and it's not the most exciting day for you, for, for obvious reasons. It's not the day that you like are pumped to go to church for. Some of you have lost a child, and Mother's Day is just a reminder, again, of, of the single most painful thing you've walked through. Some of you didn't know your mom. Some of you knew your mom, and she wasn't a good person. And perhaps you've got a lot of wounds and life experiences that you're working through as a result of that. Some of you have grown children that are not Christians, and so you you feel a sense of guilt and shame that you you raised them in the church, and for one reason or another, they they walked away, and and so you begin that kind of game that we play, like, what could I have done differently? I could have done this more. I could have done that less if I'd only done this, even though, just as a reminder, that as um, the Scripture details that Each must be accountable for him or herself. Once your kids are grown and out of the home, they're no longer your responsibility anymore. But you you can see, right? There's lots of different experiences. When you look around the room, there's a lot of different experiences in this room right now. And and so this is, it's, it's a difficult question, isn't it? It's more complicated than it seems like it should be. If we go full celebration for Mother's Day, then perhaps we're insensitive to people who 
are in one of those alternative categories. But, but then if we avoid Mother's Day, just move on like any other Sunday, then I believe we're dishonoring the moms here who are really trying to pursue Jesus and do things the right way. And, and folks, what I want to start with this morning is, is just by telling you, and it's kind of fitting actually because we're, we, we just covered ecclesiology last week. We're going to be doing part two of the church next week. We're talking about the church of Jesus, the, the functionality of the church, what the church looks like, what the purpose of the church is. And, and something that I want you to, to really be in touch with is that church life, body life, is just that. It's complicated. What it calls us to as Christians, as Christ followers that are a part of a local church, it calls us to sometimes celebrate with other people over something that we ourselves are not perhaps the most excited about. It calls us to, on the other hand, mourn with other people who are walking through tragedy or, or hurt or pain that we ourselves are unaffected by. And, and yet, that's what the body is, is it's a complex organism and it demands a complex approach to life. And so today what we want to do is we want to honor and celebrate the moms who are worthy of honor. We're going to have a parent dedication at the end of this message. We're going to bring those parents that RSVP'd up with their children at the very end and, and do a, a parent dedication uh, with the church involvement. And, and I want to say to you, if you're a parent and you have a kid in the home, no matter what the age of that kid is, don't have to be a baby, all the way through high school, if they are under your domain uh, and you feel at some point this morning throughout this message led to come up here and be a part of this dedication as well, you are fully welcome to do that. Uh, we don't there's plenty of space, so you can come up here and, and we'll make room for you. So we want to honor the moms, the, the parents, give opportunity to respond, all the while acknowledging that not everybody here is in a celebratory mood, and that's okay. Regardless of where you are and uh, whether you're a mom or even a woman, I believe the message today will challenge us and will bring us comfort, because anytime we open God's Word, it never returns void. Can we agree that the world is an unforgiving place. Can we agree on that? Can I get a hearty amen for that? And yes, it is an unforgiving, harsh place. Being a mom is no exception. It is an unforgiving job. I read a, uh, a comic this past week, Calvin and Hobbes. Mom was in bed, barely awake, eyes half open, you know, the boy is standing right beside her, like fully dressed, super excited, early in the morning. Sounds like the Bledsoe household to me, honestly. Um, I don't know who taught my kids that it was okay to wake up before seven, but it is, it is not okay. Um, he says, Mom, wake up. I made you a Mother's Day card. That's the caption reads. Oh, that's so sweet. Precious little boy made a Mother's Day card. So she sits up in bed, and she opens it up, and, and this is what it says. It says, I was going to buy a card with hearts of pink and red, but then I thought I'd rather spend my money on something else instead. It's awfully hard to buy things when one's allowance is so small. So I guess you're pl plenty lucky that I got you anything at all. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. There, I've said it. Now I'm done. So how about getting out of bed and fixing breakfast for your son? <laughs> now I think... This really captures reality nicely. I think this captures reality nicely. I, moms are some of the most dedicated and undervalued people in the world. Moms are amazing. Women in general are amazing. And men, we are, we are men. We're men. You know, um, this, is, this is really, really fantastic. One of the things that stood out to me this week when I was... When I was um, when I was thinking through this, 
is the, the way men approach problems uniquely different than women. Women approach problems in a very different manner than men do. And, and I came across this statistic that I thought was pretty fascinating, that uh, men are statistically outlived by women. Now, how many of you are shocked by that? Women outlive men. No one? You shouldn't be shocked by that, okay? If you raise your hand, I'm just saying you're in the minority, okay? Let me give you some pictures that illustrate why women outlive men. So this is a... A little dad and son bonding time. So here's the thing. I'm sure, I, I just know it. I know there was a woman somewhere in the life that was like, honey, I don't think this is a good idea. And he's like, no, it's fine. I know what I'm doing. He says with an arrow in his shoulder. How about this one? This is good. Yeah. So first of all, he's, he's rounding his back. He's going to blow his, his lumbar out. But, but beyond that, I noticed a trend. You're going to see this in the next couple pictures. You give a man a ladder, and we lose our mind. Like we, don't, we forget how to think. Look at the next one. Here we go again. Just Nothing about this is a good idea. Uh, next one. Perhaps the worst. Here we go. I don't know. I, I just... It, it's, it's shocking, and yet it's not shocking at all. You know, one of the things that's so funny about all four of these pictures is that every one of them, I guarantee you, began with a guy going, I got a great idea. I got a great idea. This is why women live longer. This is why women live longer. Another thing that stood out to me this week was how the world is appreciative of their moms. So motherhood in general is, is kind of wonky. There's some weird definitions out there about what a mom should look like. But overwhelmingly, what you find is people in power, people of influence, all seem to have pretty fond memories of their mother. Uh, certainly not the most moral figure, but um, nevertheless powerful and influential. Napoleon Bonaparte once said, give me, a, give me good mothers and I will give you a nation of good sons. He recognized that if, if you want a good society, it begins foundationally with the family, and the family includes a healthy mother, an involved mother. Abraham Lincoln, I love this. He says, I remember my mother's prayers, and they have always followed me. They have clung to me all of my life. Lincoln recalling the many prayers that his mother prayed over him as a little boy. There's a common thread when you look back on history, not just American history, but world history. Some of the most influential people that have ever lived loved their moms. And as it turns out, history bears out what Scripture has said all along. Scripture has a lot of things to say about parenthood and specifically about moms. And there are a great number of commands in the New Testament regarding uh, parents. But in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we learn of a woman named Hannah. Hannah is a godly woman, ultimately a godly mother, and I believe more relatable than you might expect. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend the remainder of our time here in this text this morning, and I want to point out some principles to you that I believe, uh, at least in part, not comprehensively, but in part, encapsulate what biblical motherhood looks like. And, and whether you're a mom or even a woman, once again, some of this stuff is going to hit you right where you are as well, because at the end of the day, these are Christian principles for all Christ followers, okay? First Samuel chapter 1, if you have it open, start with me reading in verse 1. 
There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. Skip forward to verse 2 because it's just a bunch of lineage stuff. Verse 2, he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. So let's set the stage for a moment to give some context to where we're going here. There's a man named Elkanah, and he has two wives, bless his poor little soul. Uh, One named Panina, we'll call her Penny from now on, because we can. And another named Hannah. Penny had kids, Hannah does not have kids. Keep reading, starting in verse 3. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Just pause for a moment. By the way, side note, if you ever needed more proof that the Bible does not condone multiple wives, it just called them rivals. Like, think about that category for a moment, rivals. What falls in that category? The Dallas Cowboys and the Philadelphia Eagles. UT and OU. Boomer. Apple and Android. If you want to go down the war route, you have the Axis power and the Allied powers. And then the Bible says, in that same category, we're going to put two women married to one man. About to have a war break out in Elkanah's house, and he doesn't even realize it. Keep reading, verse 7. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Isn't this just like a guy? Wife is upset by something dear and very personal to her. And what does the husband do? He's like, am I not enough? Makes it all about himself. Guys, this is not a good play, right? This does not work. I know. I've tried it. It doesn't work. All kidding aside, the passage reveals something to us immediately that I want to camp on for a moment and we'll continue. And that is this, that godly women don't have it all together. And that's a good thing. Godly women don't have it all together. This is a really painful experience for Hannah. I mean, all joking aside, we can, we can kind of, you know, cast light on, on some of these things, but, but the reality is this is a, a very difficult and very painful life that she is living. She's married to a man that she has to share with another woman. She has no real security with her husband. She has, she has no real feeling of, of, I'm the only person that my husband looks to and is in love with because she's not. He's married to two women. Beyond that, uh, she wants to have kids, and for one reason or another, she's not able to. In God's sovereignty, she's not able to. It wasn't because God was punishing her. It wasn't because she had some unconfessed sin. It wasn't because she had done this or that. The text doesn't even tell us why. It just says, for one reason or another, she can't have children. And then to make matters worse, the woman she shares her husband with can and makes fun of her because she can't. And then to top it all off, the man that she's married to, that she loves, that she wants to look to for comfort, can't understand the enormity of her situation and just makes it all about himself. So this is a, this is a real painful moment that she's living in. 
You know, it's frustrating to me because uh, as a guy married to a woman who is the mother of my children, I realize that there has never been a more demanding time for mothers to feel like they have it all together. We live in a social media-driven world, and, uh, you know, it shapes so much of of what we do. And and so whether you're on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or a blog, blogs are, you know, a big thing, have been for years now, but are, are becoming even bigger. No matter where you look, you will find countless influencers who have pictures of their perfectly dressed kids and their perfectly manicured home. It's perfectly designed, beautiful. Everyone is happy. Everyone is smiling. Everything is good. You go on Pinterest and and you can find these amazing recipes that you can make your little lunches for your little kids. And it's sugar-free and gluten-free and paleo because he's worth it. And I think what happens is... It's all meant to be motivational. It's all meant to be helpful. I don't think anyone's doing this to sabotage anyone. But what happens is it's it's actually not helpful at all. It sets the bar to an impossibly high standard that moms in the real world can't actually live up to because your house isn't clean and your kids dress themselves this morning and they look more like clowns than children. And one of them is crying at all times. Not the same one, but one of them is crying at all times. And you because you are really out of touch, had McDonald's twice this week. <laughs> right? And so, on top of that, you have your own, your own stuff you're working through, your own hurts and wounds, things that have happened to you in your life. And so there's all this guilt, there's all this pain, there's all of this anxiety in your life. And, and so what happens is that translates then into your interaction with your kids. And, and so you don't always have good days with your kids. You sometimes say things that you wish you wouldn't have said at a volume you wish you wouldn't have said it at. And what I want to say to you this morning, moms, is that is okay. It's okay. You don't have to have it all together all the time. You get the feeling when you read this that Hannah is not the most stable person you know right now, right? Verse 7, Hannah wept and would not eat. I mean, just think about the picture this is painting for us. She's not eating her food. She's crying all the time. This is not a good place to be. But it's what's happening to her. It's where she is. And she's cast as as a godly example for women. I watch my own wife feel the pressure of this. She constantly feels like a failure. She constantly feels like she's never doing anything right. The weight, the pressure of, of getting it all together and getting it all done and having a smile and being positive all the time. And, and then on top of that, she's a pastor's wife, right? And so there's the pressure of that. And I always, I always talk to her you know, when, when she's struggling with that, and I always remind her of what the Bible says about pastor's wives, which is nothing, Bible doesn't say anything about pastor's wife. We made that up. It's literally a made-up thing. It's not a thing in the Bible. God calls her as the pastor's wife to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower that needs grace, that needs forgiveness. Godly women don't have it all together, and that is just fine. Listen to me. It's why we need a Savior, amen? It's why we need grace. That's why we rejoice over grace, because we are all men and women in the church, brutally imperfect people. Keep reading verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose 
And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. So things are not better, but she's praying. And then she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So check this out. Godly women don't have it all together all the time. And as a result of that, godly women, number two, pray often. Hannah responds in prayer. Scripture says a lot about prayer, the value of prayer. James 5.13, is anyone among you suffering? I mean, think about this for a minute, okay? Just ask this question to the church. Are any of you suffering right now? You can give me a little nod, it's fine. Any of you suffering? Any of you going through a hard time? What does James say? Let him pray. That's the, the grand suggestion of Scripture, and it is a grand suggestion. Because we have access to God through Jesus. Proverbs 15.8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. People ask all the time, I'm trying to figure out what the will of God is trying to determine what God's will is for my life. You want to know what God's will is for your life? For you to rejoice always, for you to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in every circumstance that you face, especially the crappy ones. That's God's will. Listen, moms, your job isn't easy. Kids are crazy. Men are stupid. And you have your own stuff on top of that. But let me ask you a question. How often do you take that to the Lord? How often do you pray about it? You may not have it all together, but you have access to the one who holds all things together. How often do we utilize that privilege that we have? Godly women and men pray. Now, ladies, um, some of you, I think, may want to be that person, but you just don't know how. I think sometimes we assume as pastors, as leaders, that that we, we preach a sermon like this, you ought to pray often, and we just sort of move on because we assume that most people know what prayer looks like. They know how to engage in it. They know how to organize it within their life, and, and that's an assumption that I think is a bad assumption to make. And so here's what I want to say to you specifically as women. Tomorrow night, as I mentioned at the welcome, the exchange is happening, 6.45. Every, 6.45, or every Monday at 6.45, child care included, the, the, there's a women's only Bible study called the exchange. And do you know what they are talking about literally the entire month of May? Prayer. Prayer, individual prayer, corporate prayer, the heart of prayer, the the spiritual condition that you bring to prayer, and how prayer functions within the life of worship. All you got to do is sign up. And that's if you want childcare. If you don't need childcare, you can just show up. 6.45 here on Monday. What is preventing you from prayer? Is it a lack of understanding? Is it a lack of accountability? Do you need somebody to hold you accountable to it? Then come to the exchange. That's why they're studying it all month. Keep reading with me, verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Kind of a harsh way of saying it. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elka knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, she conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him from the Lord. Now, there's a lot going on here in this passage. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but, but there's something that really stands out to me that I want to spend a little bit of time on because I think it's an important aspect of specifically church life here at City on a Hill, and that is this. Number three, godly women are transparent. They're transparent. In other words, what this means is that you don't have it all together, and you don't try and hide the fact that you don't have it all together. So here Hannah is. She's distraught. She's still not, not well. She's weeping bitterly. She's praying. She's still not eating. And it says that she's praying at this point from a place of great anxiety and vexation. She's desperate for something to change. And Eli, the priest, comes along. He sees her in bad shape. He actually thinks she's drunk. He's like, girl, it's not even noon, and you might have a problem. Now, at this point, Hannah has a decision to make. Someone has seen her in her rougher state, if you will. Okay, her bad side, if you want to call it that. So she has a choice to make, and it's a choice that all of us will have to make at some point in your life. There is going to come a time, no matter how well-preserved you are, no matter how much of a show you put on to other people in your life, there will be a day, mark my words, if you've not already experienced it many times over, where your stuff starts to show to someone else in your life. And they notice it, and they say something to you about it because they're concerned. And you have a choice at that point of how you're going to respond to that person. You have three options. Number one, you can avoid the discussion altogether. This is probably the most common one, right? This is the thing that most people do. Just avoid it. Play it off like everything's okay. Hannah could have said to Eli, oh, priest, I'm not drunk. I was singing a worship song under my breath. Things are fine. Praise God. Hallelujah. Right? Now, this option says... I don't have it all together, and no one else needs to know that. It's zero transparency. Zero transparency. This is one that I I believe of the three is going to be the most difficult for you here at City on a Hill. This is a challenging one to live out at this church. I heard James say one time on a radio interview, uh, City on a Hill is a place you come to heal, not hide. You're going to have a really difficult time hiding here because the culture here is very open to transparency. It's very open to sharing. So if you're in a small group and you are with five other people and they're all talking about some like gut-wrenching things that are going on in their life and then they get to you and you're like, hmm, everything's fine, it's going to stand out a little bit. Now, you're still welcome here. We want you here. You, You need to be here. But this is not the model that you want to try to actually intentionally pursue Not only here, but really honestly anywhere. Number two, you can affirm your flaws. You can affirm your flaws. This is a growing trend right now in the world. Jessica, my wife, I was talking to her this week as I was prepping because I I wanted to make sure I was getting her perspective on on some of these things. And and, uh, and she brought this one up. She said, you know, this is something I'm kind of seeing on the other side of stuff is not the the need to be perfect, but there's almost this like, this like, 
um, need to want to look transparent on social media in particular, but it's still not real. It's almost like an embrace of the messiness without any desire to change, right? So here's my life. It's crazy. I'm a mess. <laughs> this is who I am, right? And there's no desire to ever actually grow out of it. So here's how this looks. Hannah could have said to Eli, no, I'm not drunk, I'm in pain, this is who I am, and you can either accept me this way because I'm not going to change, or you can get out of my way. But this is who I am. This mindset is all about transparency, but it's not about transformation. It says, I'm flawed, and I'm okay that way. And if you're going to love me, you're going to need to accept me this way because this is who I'm always going to be. It's a brand of transparency that actually avoids sanctifying work. It avoids actual life change. It avoids transformation in Christ. So let me give you a truth, because I think this is an important one for us at City on a Hill. Very important for us. Transparency without transformation is toxic. It's actually toxic. That's what I would call toxic transparency. This is not the kind of transparency we're after. This is why our vision statement is what it is. Some of you may not even be aware of what our vision statement is, so we're going to actually talk through it this morning. It's two parts, and, and it is intentionally two parts, and both parts of it are equally important. The first part of our vision statement is making church a safe place for people to let go of their secrets. Now, if we stopped there, and, we're, and that was just the only part of our vision statement, what we would be doing is we'd be creating an environment that is very conducive to toxic transparency. It would be a church where you can come and you can spill all the messy details of your life, never actually address any of it, and what you're doing is you're actually creating sort of an emotional, spiritual septic tank where all of it is just swirling around and no one is ever actually doing anything about it. It becomes toxic. It becomes very, very toxic, which is why we have the second part of our vision statement, which says providing a safe process to grow, keyword in spiritual and emotional maturity in Christ. Bing, 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 bing. Let me give you another truth. The safe process is what moves transparency from toxic to transformational. That's the key to unlocking it. The safe process is what moves transparency from toxic to transformational. That is the goal at City on a Hill. That is what we're after. That's what we're going for, which leads me to number three, is you can admit powerlessness. Ultimately, Hannah tells Eli what's going on. She is transparent with him, but she does so in, in a manner to enlist his help. She says, let your servant find favor in your eyes, and he even prays for her. Let the God of Israel do what you've petitioned him for. She realizes, I am in a place where I cannot fix these problems. I cannot do anything about this. I'm dying. I don't eat. I weep all the time. I have great anxiety and vexation. I don't know what to do. And so she comes to a place of powerlessness where she's not only transparent with him, but it's not a toxic transparency. It's a kind of transparency that seeks for help. It's transformational transparency. This is a core value of sitting on a hill. This is, this is where we want you to come at some point in your spiritual journey while you are here, where you feel okay not feeling okay all the time. That's step one, because most churches don't even like that. They just want you to be okay all the time. Praise God. Praise Jesus. You just pray it out. 
You need to read your Bible more. You'll be happier. So we want you to feel okay about not feeling okay. But also, in that, in that struggle to feel and lean into Jesus desperately and then share your pain with others for the purpose of actually growing out of it, coming away a stronger, more equipped, better understood individual. If you are the same person you were five years ago in this category, there's a problem. There's a problem. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, I talk about my problems. Well, maybe that's the issue is you talk about them and you don't ever actually deal with them. And maybe you're living right now in toxic transparency. You're okay with sharing, but you haven't, check this out, released control over it. And that's really the key. That's one of the things that just and we were talking about this this week. She goes, you know, that's what's interesting is those first two that you put down, the control remains in that person's grasp. If you're avoiding the discussion and you're just image managing, you're, you're in control. If you are affirming your flaws, digging your feet into the concrete, and refusing to ever actually change, you're in control. Both of those give me the control. I'm in the driver's seat. But the third option requires me to relinquish control. It, it requires me to say, I can't do this, but I believe that God can and so I'm going to turn my life, the care of my life over to him. See, godly women avoid toxic transparency and embrace transformational transparency. Keep reading, verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. And so the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her. This is going to seem strange for a moment. I'll explain it. Along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And there they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in the presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Number four, godly women recognize God's faithfulness. So Samuel is weaned. He would have been about three years old at this point. Uh, historically, that would have been his age. He's taken to the temple. She brings all these weird ingredients, a bull, flour, wine. What is she doing? This is how you worship in the Old Testament. This is temple worship. You would make a sacrifice, and you would, you would through that sacrifice, worship God for what he has done for you. It's just so interesting to me that some people, you know, get so inconvenient sometimes by the worship process in the modern church. Like, I don't like worship because I have to stand up, or it's, it's too fast, or it's too loud. We're not asking you to kill a bull. And, and, you know, and some people will say, like, you know, I don't like it because they burn a candle and I have really bad allergies. You would have hated Old Testament worship. That's all they did is burn things. Except for it wasn't candles. It was like dead carcasses and all kinds of weird stuff. This is what worship looked like. And so they come in and immediately before she does anything else, she worships God because she recognizes his faithfulness to her. This is why we pattern our worship service, one of the reasons why we pattern our worship service in the way that we do. When you come in on Sunday morning, the first thing we do before we open the Bible and, and, and give to you a sermon, deliver a sermon, or pray, or anything else, is what do we do? We stand and we worship. Why do we do that? Because we want to give you an opportunity, no matter what is happening in your life, 
to come in and recognize God's faithfulness to you and respond in gratitude through song. That's why we have an R&R service midweek now, so that you can come in and rest from the busyness of the week, recover from whatever is happening in your life, and through that process of reading Scripture, meditating on it, praying for other individuals, and eventually worshiping before we're dismissed, it gives you the opportunity to recognize God's faithfulness to you. Psalm 69.30 says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. It doesn't matter how big or small, you bring those things to the Lord. You give him thanks and you recognize his faithfulness. Last but not least, verse 27, she says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and she worshiped the Lord there. So godly women don't have it all together. They pray often. They embrace transformational transparency. They recognize God's faithfulness. And last, they are committed to God's call. You remember what she prayed in verse 11? She vowed a vow and said, Lord, if you will give me a child, I'll give him back to you. I I will give him back to you, and no razor shall touch his head. That's kind of another confusing detail if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, This is a, a reference to the Nazaritic vow, the Nazarite It's a very holy and sacred vow in the Old Testament. comes from number six. Anyone remember the most famous Nazarite in the Old Testament? Don't say Jesus. I always set you up for the Jesus answer. Samson. Yes, Samson. Samson was a Nazarite. He had taken the Nazaritic vow. That's why he couldn't touch anything dead. That's why he couldn't cut his hair. And remember, he was like supernaturally strong, could kill like 30,000 people with the jawbone of a donkey. And then all of a sudden... He cuts his hair, razor touches his head, loses all of his strength. Why? Because he broke the vow. He was under the Nazarite vow. And he was a judge. There was a little more going on there. So Hannah's saying, God, if you'll give me a baby, I'm going to do my part to give him back to you. And that's what she does. She comes at three years old, once he's been weaned, brings him to the temple. She actually leaves him there and trusts him to Eli, the priest, that he would grow into a priest himself. And do you know who Samuel becomes? A, he becomes the man named after uh, or that is named for this book that we're reading, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. He's a prophet, a prophet and a priest. He anoints someone very, very important, actually two people very important in the uh, <clears throat> monarchy of Israel, Saul, the first king, and David, the greatest king, who ends up unifying Israel into one united kingdom. Sorry, Britain, they did it first. So here's the deal. This is where we'll end. Um, We don't take Nazaritic vows today. Um, You can shave your baby's head if you want. It's not going to change it. It'd be weird, but it's not going to change anything. Um, Some churches have baby dedications. The problem with the baby dedication is you can't really choose what your baby's going to do. As you'll see in a moment when these parents bring these kids up, you can't really control what your baby's going to do. You can choose what you will do. And so in a sense, you're dedicating yourself. You're saying, I recognize that God has given me this gift, and so I am going to give him or her back to you. So what I want to do is I want to call the parents who have RSVP'd up to the stage with with or without, the if if your child is in, in Sunday school, it's totally fine. You're dedicating yourself, not your kids, so it's all good. But we invite you up to the stage now, and uh, as they're coming up, I'm going to read a passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And actually, you know what? Why don't we have you all in the front this time? We did it on the stage last time, and I think it'd be better up here, especially with a bigger crowd. Yeah, just right up front, right alongside. All right. 
Y'all come on up. Our parents are warriors. They, uh, I know how difficult it is to try to control a child through a church service. Um, when mine are not charismatically dancing in the front row, they are uh, somewhere else. Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. The first commandment is this, parents, that you love God with everything that you have. Everything that you have, you love God. He says, after that, these words I say that I command to you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And then he lists a laundry list of things that they are to do to teach their kids to love God. So here's the second command. You teach your kids to love Jesus as you love Jesus. Okay? It's okay. It's okay, bud. I get it, man. I get it. It's scary. Imagine how I feel every Sunday. All these people looking at me. <laughs> Parents, I'm going to have you uh, read or speak after me. If you will look up on this screen up here, the words are going to be right in front of you. Okay? We've set it up that way. I want you to repeat after me. I will treasure my child as a gift from God on loan to me. I will teach my child of God's love and of his gift of eternal life through his son, Jesus. I will show grace and forgiveness to my child as grace and forgiveness have been shown to me. I will disciple and lead my child to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus. I will accept responsibility for helping my child discover his or her God-given purpose in life. And this one's so important. I will model repentance when I fall short and demonstrate what a repentant life looks like. Now, church, I want you to stand as well. It's important for these parents to see you standing with them. And I'm going to have you repeat after me. And you are going to be speaking to these parents here, not me. So look at them. Repeat after me. I will pray for you and your children as often as I think of your family. I will encourage you often to continue leading your children in a godly way. I will assist you when necessary in watching over your children. I will hold you accountable to this commitment that you have made by caring for you and asking you how you're doing. All right. We're going to pray over these parents. If you feel led to come up and lay hands on them, I invite you now to do that. And it is perfectly okay. I know you probably feel all kinds of... And this is what, this is what parenthood is. All the young people are like, I'm never having kids. I understand. No, I, I get it. If you would come up and lay hands on these folks, pray over them, just as you feel led. <laughs> and if you are uh, standing in position, I would also invite you just to uh, pray over these 
these sweet families and these sweet babies as well. I'll give you a few moments. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these sweet parents and these gifts that you've given them. Father, as a pastor, I would rather preach in a room full of the voices, the sounds, the cries of children than a silent room any day of the week because it represents a growing family, which is a gift to this church. I pray that you would impart love to these families, supernatural strength and energy, and that we would be a church that loves them well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for being here. Thank you for participating in this. We will let these folks get out of here. We'll see you next week. We're talking about the church. God bless you all.